You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hydepark.church. Chapter, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 16. Man, I'm backing up. I've already been through Acts 6, Acts 16. As you are uh, finding your place, um, just a couple of things. We are going to be observing communion today. And if you didn't get a chance to pick up all these little cups over at the table next to the door, you can do it now. You can do it any time between now and the end of the service. It's not going to bother me a bit. Uh, you may be wondering, uh, where is the... Uh, the bread, uh, well, it's it's there, actually. It's right on top. So this thing has two little layers you peel back. The first one you peel back is a four-round disc of, of bread right on top. And, uh, of course, then the next one you peel back is going to be uh, juice as well. So the uh, reason we're not passing them out is for obvious reasons. We don't want too many hands touching them. And that way you've touched yours and only one other person has touched it, and that's me. So and my hands were clean. I promise you that. They were clean. So uh, if you have an opportunity and you want to participate today, by all means, and for those of you who are watching online today, uh, if, if you haven't made preparations and you've got uh, what you need there at your house, uh, you, know, you don't have to use necessarily grapes. Remember, this is symbolic. It, it is to point us back to Christ's death and burial and what that means for us. So you may not have exactly the right elements, but uh, if you want to participate, don't, don't be too legalistic on making sure it's exactly Welch's grape juice and exactly the right bread. If you've got elements there that you can use, uh, I think the important thing is that we, we do it together, whether we're here on campus or watching online. So if you want to participate, please, please do. We would love for you to do that and want you to, encourage you to. And I know that it's different. <clears throat> I know that it's different than having the table up here with the sheet over it and our deacons coming forward. But remember, if we could get in a time machine and we could go back uh, to the time of the book of Acts that we've been looking through, I think you'd be very shocked and surprised at just how different it was then when they would uh, break bread together and remember uh, Jesus' death. I, I think we would all be surprised at just how uh, focused it was on the family. I think we'd be surprised at how uh, just what a, a great community and time of fellowship it was together. I think it would look very different than, than maybe the way we do it. So uh, the way we do it, I don't think we need to be too strict on, although the Bible does say we need to do things in an orderly fashion. I think what we need to focus on is exactly what it's meant to focus our hearts on. That's Jesus' suffering and his death on our behalf. Acts chapter 16. One of the things that, uh, I think that you've probably noticed, uh, or if not, I want to draw your attention to it, that is that in the early part of the book of Acts, we, we kept seeing these massive numbers of people come to faith in Christ. If you remember uh, the first sermon right after uh, Pentecost, Peter walks out of that upper room and the streets are filled with people because there were thousands and thousands of people there who were, who were observing Pentecost. And Peter preaches a sermon and 3,000 people come to faith in Christ. And we have several instances of that in the early part of the book of Acts. So, so from chapters uh, 2 to 8, we see where thousands, many, many, many people come to faith in Christ. But as we move further into the book and as uh, people who have been changed by the gospel and have their hearts changed, as they, as they begin to disperse throughout Asia Minor, Judea, and, and what we're going to see today, all the way in what we know to be Europe, we, we see individuals sharing the gospel with other individuals and seeing people come to faith in Christ, not in large, huge, vast amounts of people. That's not to say that it wasn't happening. But, but Luke, as he documents what's happening in the early church, he draws our attention to specifically Paul and Silas and Timothy and, and, of course, Luke. And what we see is them going from place to place, sharing the gospel with small groups of people, individuals. Some of them come to faith in Christ, some of them don't. And what we see is we see Paul establishing churches in an incredible fashion that He's only there for short periods of time, but he's able to see people come to faith in Christ. He's able to see uh, people grow in that faith and then, and then begin to lead the church themselves. I, I want to show you a diagram this morning. It's, 
It's a diagram that I've, I've been using for quite some time now. And I just want to kind of give you this to kind of give us a, a launching point for what Paul is going to face today in Are we coming back on there, guys? Am I, am, I, am I back? All right, good deal. Pick it right back up where I was. All right, so if you look at this, I want to show you this over here. This is where we're all heading as believers in Christ. All of us are heading to this, this end result, and that is a redeemed people gathered around a risen Christ. So, the, the, so if we could start with the end and back up, the end goal is, is that every person who's put their faith in Jesus, all tribes, all nations are going to be gathered together with Jesus in that final kingdom. So that, this is where we are all heading if we're born again, is we're going to be with Jesus in that final state, in that final kingdom, in that new body. We know the Bible tells us that that kingdom will eventually become be on earth. Jesus will reign, and we will be part of that kingdom. So this is where we're going. And the Great Commission says that as disciples of Christ, we are to make more disciples of Christ so that more and more people have the opportunity to be gathered in this final kingdom. Now, if we back up a little bit, you see these little L's. I told you several weeks ago that if you take disciple and you, and you kind of bear that all the way down to what it really means to be a disciple, it means to be a learner, a learner of Christ, a follower of Christ. So those of you who've come to faith in Christ, you've been following Jesus, you've been learning him, you've been immersing yourself in God's word, and you've been growing in faith. Now, as a disciple, we are called to go back over into this place called the domain of darkness. You see, this is where we've been called to go. As you've seen in the book of Acts over and over and over again, what is driving Paul, what is driving him to go not only into Asia Minor, but last week where he was trying to go into Bithynia to the north, or he was trying to go southwest to Ephesus, and the Holy Spirit said, no, you're going to go to Macedonia. He has a vision. And in that vision, he sees a man, and this man says, come over to Macedonia so that they too could hear the gospel. What drives Paul to walk thousands of miles? What drives Paul to, to, after he gets beaten and abused, to get back up and go right back into the towns where they had just ran him out of town? What is it that drives him? I'll tell you what drives him. These people who are lost in darkness. His love and his compassion of, of, of the faith and the freedom that he found in Christ, he wants every person fine. He Paul even says at one point when he's writing the book of Romans, he says in Romans 11 that he has such a passion for the people who are lost and in this domain of darkness, even his brothers, the Jews. Remember, Paul was a Jew, and he met Jesus on the Damascus Road. Everything changed. Paul says this at one point. He says, if, if it were that, that my brothers, the Jewish people, could come to faith in Christ, he said, I, I would give up my right to the kingdom. In other words, Paul said that he loved the Jewish people so much that he wanted to see them transformed and see Jesus as Messiah, that, that if, it, if it were possible for him to give up his salvation, to give up the freedom he's found in Christ, so that his brothers could find faith and find Messiah and come to faith, he would do it. Pretty incredible love and pretty incredible zeal, folks over here. You see, every learner of Christ has been called to go back into this domain of darkness from which we came. Every one of us who put our faith in Jesus, we were here. Some of us were very, very far from Jesus. And what I want you to notice is, is in this domain of darkness, there are some people who are, who are right at the edge of putting their faith in Jesus. Maybe they've heard the gospel many times. Maybe they've been attending Hyde Park Baptist Church for two, three, four years, and they've never put their faith in Jesus. And they've heard the gospel from here. They've heard it in the songs. They've heard it in small group. They've heard it from their kids who are being taught the gospel in our small groups for kids. But they're getting inundated with the gospel, and they are right here. They're right at the edge of putting their faith in Jesus. But there's also people who are far, far, far away from Christ who maybe have not heard the gospel at all. Or maybe, maybe you're very, very angry and hateful towards the church, towards what you believe. And we would say that they're pretty far from Jesus. The point is, is that as learners of Christ, we've been called to go back here 
And we've been called to engage in that one who's an atheist, engage in that one who may be Buddhist, engage in that one who, who has a complete misunderstanding of what the church is about or has no understanding whatsoever. And we're also called to engage that one who's heard the gospel 14 times, 60 times, 100 times, and still have not surrendered to Christ. We've been called to go back into this domain of darkness for the sole purpose of seeing each one of these people take a step towards Jesus. What does it mean to evangelize? It simply means to start where that person is and help them take another step towards surrendering their faith in Christ, surrendering in faith in Christ. For the one who's far, far away, it may be like what we saw with Paul and what we're going to see when he goes to Athens, that, that Paul talks about the existence of God and that God is creator. For someone who's an atheist who knows none of the terminology that you know, who knows nothing about the gospel, knows nothing about the resurrection, you're going to have to start where they are, and it may be that, that we start with a God who created. For the ones who've heard multiple times, have yet to surrender, what it really comes down to most of the time is there's something in their life that has become a God to them. They're afraid of giving that up. But in every opportunity we have, there's a combination of truth being shared and the Holy Spirit work. That there's a combined effort of, of truth being presented whether that truth is there's a God in heaven who created all things or there's a Jesus Christ who resurrected from the dead, that we start where that person is and, and as we share the truth, the Holy Spirit begins to work and draws that person to the cross. Every single born-again believer had a combination of someone embodying the truth and the Holy Spirit taking that truth and bearing it upon our lives. There's not a single person that's ever come to faith in Christ that came to faith in Christ simply because another person argued them into the kingdom, that their argument was so compelling. Because the Bible tells us that unless the Holy Spirit is drawing you, unless the Holy Spirit is working in your life and drawing you to the cross, you cannot be born again. So it's not about a compelling argument. It's about speaking the truth, which may be a compelling argument, the Holy Spirit working as well. Paul was not allowed to go into Ephesus, and he was not allowed to go into Bithynia. He was only allowed to go to Troas. And in Troas, he hears, gets this vision of going over into Macedonia, what we know to be Europe. And this was a major moment in the movement of the church. The church had been kind of confined to this, this one region, both in Judea, Jerusalem, around through Antioch, and then Asia Minor. But for the first time, the gospel is going to leave that region and go to a whole new region. That's not because there wasn't many lost people in Asia Minor. But God's up to something here. Paul recognized that. Paul makes a 130-mile journey from Troas to Macedonia. And what he's going to find in Macedonia is he's going to find a vast amount of Gentiles who have heard about all kinds of gods but have not heard about the one true God. They've heard about all kinds of mythology. They have all kinds of belief systems. As he progresses further and further and more and closer and closer to Athens, he's going to find more and more and more idolatry. And if Jehovah God has been mentioned, or if Jesus has been mentioned, which very unlikely that he had, it's just one more God among a plethora of gods that they worshipped and believed in. So Paul has got his work cut out for him. Paul, Silas, Timothy, and we also notice in verse 11, I want you to notice this. So setting sail from Troas, I want you to notice the word we. Who's writing the book of Acts? Luke. And what does Luke do? Luke says, I'm with Paul and Silas and Timothy. So, so Luke includes himself into the narrative, and Luke is going to make this journey from Troas over to Macedonia. So we have a team of missionaries here. And as they, as they enter into Macedonia, they're going to come in contact with three people. Three very different people. As a matter of fact, it's three people that, that you've probably already come in contact with. Matter of fact, these three people may represent three people in your life right now that desperately need to hear about Jesus. And all three of these people, and in the way that Paul is going to engage them, even the way that Paul engages is going to be different. The way, the way that Paul finds himself in a situation with these three individuals is different in each three cases. Paul's going to find himself in that city of Philippi. 
And in that city of Philippi, he's going to come in contact with three very different people. And those three different, those three people, all three need hope. All three of them need Jesus. All three of them need somebody from the outside to reach out to them, to, to give them a hand. And in all three of these circumstances, Paul is going to have to deal with them, each as individuals. Verse 11, so setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, the following way to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. I think that Paul had his eyes on Philippi from the very moment he stepped on shore. You know that this is where the church is going to be planted, where he writes the letter that we know to be Philippians, one of the most joy-filled letters that Paul wrote. And this is where it gets its beginnings. This church at Philippi is going to get its beginnings right here as Paul and his missionary team come into Macedonia. He sees Philippi, and he sees that there's a tremendous opportunity for the gospel in that area. It says, we remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down. We spoke to the women who had come together. There is no synagogue in Philippi. Just like much what we saw in Lystra and Derby, there there's no Jewish presence here. Remember, it takes at least 10 Jewish households to be able to justify a synagogue. So there's less than 10 Jewish households in Philippi. That's why there's no synagogue. So Paul would have initially looked for a synagogue. He can't find one. So what Paul begins to do is he begins to kind of talk around in the community to find out where, where are religious people, Jewish people, anybody, where are they gathering at? See, Paul's intentional. When he enters into the city of Philippi, he knows there are plenty of lost people. Nobody's here. Nobody in that area had heard about Jesus. So, so the fields are truly white with harvest. So, so Paul begins to say, let's start where we can start and find a connection with people. Let's start where we can find some people who are really close to understanding who Jesus is. And guess who that is? A group of Jewish women. And the only place that they had to meet was down by a riverside. And Paul finds out where they're meeting. Paul sees this as an opportunity to engage. So Paul goes to this riverside, verse 14. So Paul goes there and he obviously begins to teach and to engage and to talk about Jesus. And one of those who heard them was a woman named Lydia. And this is the first person that I want to introduce you to, is Lydia. Lydia is a seller of purple from a city called Thyatira, which is actually back in Asia Minor. Now, this lady, no doubt, was a woman who had a lot of wealth. The cloth that she sold was in high demand. Thyatira was known for dyeing cloths, particularly this, this shade of purple, and everybody wanted it. Every king wanted to be able to buy this kind of cloth for their queens. Every significant wealthy person in Roman authority always wanted to, to give their wives purple cloth from Thyatira. It'd be like the equivalent of, of a very rare diamond or a very rare, rare piece, piece of jewelry in our context, everybody that had any money wanted to get some cloth from Thyatira. And it just so happens that Lydia has the corner market on her. Now, she's a Gentile, but she has apparently converted to Judaism, and so she is a practicing Jew, but there is no synagogue. So they gather at this riverside to basically sing psalms and praise to God. It says that she was a God worshiper. Now, we could all agree that if we put the chart back up that that Lydia is very close to that cross. She's very close to understanding the gospel. All she needs to do is hear that Jesus Messiah has come. So Paul begins to teach the gospel to this wealthy business leader who pretty much had everything she needed. With the wealth that she had acquired and the influence that she had acquired, there was still something missing in her life. She, she was trying to fulfill that missing piece in her life by the practice of religion, the religion of Judaism, but, but there's still something missing. Now, the world would tell us that if she's a Jew, whatever religion she chooses, that all religions lead to utopia, right? I mean, why, why, why bother her? Why, why push any kind of other religion or belief system on her? She's already got her belief system, and it would be wrong for Paul to push something else on her unless, of course, She's wrong that, in fact, Judaism is not going to fill that hole in her heart. That, in fact, the, the practice of the law 
The pursuing of God in this religion is not going to fulfill her life. If anything else, it's going to make her life even more difficult. Jesus and Paul both talked about this, that the yoke of the law around a person's neck is not freedom. It's bondage. So she's a worshiper of God. She's wealthy, but there's still something missing. It says that she was a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. Look at this. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Apparently, God knew that what she needed on that day was what Paul had. You've got to, you've got to see this. You've seen it so many times up there. I just want to highlight it again that, that God was already at work at that riverside. God, God was already working there. He'd already been working in Lydia's heart. All that was missing was for Paul to be faithful, to go to that riverside, to share the truth. And what God did was open her heart to the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want to emphasize that it wasn't Paul's argument. It wasn't how eloquent Paul was. That it was God working in that moment. And whatever Paul said and whatever Paul proclaimed in that moment, God took it, brought conviction into her heart. She believed and repented. How do we know that? Notice what happens. And after she was baptized, seems like we're missing something there, right? The Bible says that Paul proclaimed the truth. The Bible says that, that God revealed the truth to her heart, drew her to salvation. She surrendered and put her faith in Jesus, and the, act, the obvious outcropping of that or outworking of that is her being baptized, but not only her, but her entire household as well. This is Kind of one of the first instances we get into this where a whole household comes to faith in Christ. Does this mean that because Lydia put her faith in Jesus that automatically the rest of her, her family was automatically saved because Lydia put her faith in Jesus? No. What it means is, is that there was such a change in Lydia's life that it impacted her so much and there was such a change that automatically her family wanted to know how she could be changed like that. And they each individually put their faith in Jesus as well. So who is this person in your life? Who, who is the person in your life that's like Lydia? Well, it's that person that you work with in your family that they have everything. They've got it all. They've, they've got the wealth of the world. They've got fame. Maybe they've got fortunes. They've got toys. They've got houses. They've got everything physically that a person could want, and yet they're missing the most important thing. There's a tendency... There's a tendency among the church, among disciples, to, to forget about those who have a lot of wealth and a lot of means. It's almost as though we, we think that because of their wealth, because of their goods, because of it, and maybe they're a good person, maybe they're nice, and maybe, maybe they're religious, but they've never found Jesus, they've never put their faith in Christ. We have this tendency just to kind of forget about them. We have a tendency just to think, well, Maybe they're okay. Maybe just because of their wealth and their power and their fame, maybe they're okay. Well, maybe they're not. And, and maybe that person in your life that you're looking right past who has everything that the world has to offer is one of those people who are far from Jesus, who are living in the domain of darkness, who need you to help them take a step towards redemption. Lydia is probably someone you've got in your life. They're, they're good people. They, they worship God. Maybe they've been a church member for many, many years. They've never surrendered to Christ. The fact is, upon their death, they die apart from Him, rejecting the gospel, and they will be tormented in hell for all eternity. That is the fact. Regardless of how religious they were, regardless of how much money they had, regardless of how much fame they were able to acquire in this life, Without Jesus Christ, they've missed the greatest thing they could possibly give their life to. I wonder if you don't have a couple of Lydia's in your life. They need to be engaged. Paul intentionally, intentionally goes to this riverside, intentionally goes and shares the gospel, and Lydia hears and responds. Maybe we need to be intentional about reaching out with those Lydia's in our life who, who, who have everything but yet have nothing, who have, who have all that the world has to offer but, but are lost and barren in, on the inside. 
Jesus said, what does a man gain if he gains the whole world? Loses his own soul. She was looking for something. She was never going to find it. Maybe the person that you're thinking of right now, it could be a man or a woman, maybe that person you're thinking of right now is looking for something. They're giving all the tangible evidence that this life has left them empty. What does it look like for you to engage? Well, send them a text. Give them a call. Say, hey, let's, let's meet for coffee sometime. We'll social distance. We can wear a mask. We'll take our mask off to drink coffee. There's something I really want to talk about. Something maybe I should have already talked about that I haven't yet. Maybe you're a Lydia. Maybe, maybe it's not somebody else. Maybe that's you. Maybe you've pursued everything the world has to offer and there's still something missing. Religion hasn't filled it. Money hasn't filled it. Fame hasn't filled it. Stuff hasn't filled it. Education hasn't filled it. Social justice work, helping others in need hasn't filled it. You know why that is? It's because only Jesus can. Until you surrender to Him, you're never going to find that purpose in life. And until you until you surrender him, you're never going to find that peace. Let me introduce you to the second person. Verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer on one of these days that Paul was going to this riverside, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination, brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and and us crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And she kept doing it for many days. So Paul, as he's going to the, this riverside over and over again, one day they're engaged by this, this girl, a young girl, who's enslaved and has a, has a spirit of divination. So let me explain what that means. In the Roman Empire, in this particular culture, these spirits of divination, these soothsayers, these uh, fortune tellers, were everywhere through culture. As a matter of fact, a lot of the kings and military leaders would not go out into battle until they had their soothsayers and fortune tellers come together and try to predict the future for whatever battle they were getting to engage in. This kind of thing was all through the Roman culture, all through these provinces. And Paul was going to have to deal with this over and over and over again. This is not the first nor the last. If you remember, he had to deal with Barisu a few chapters back. The spirit of divination is actually a demonic possession of this slave girl. But not only that, the reason she's enslaved is because these Gentile men has taken this Gentile woman who happens to be demonically possessed, and, and they are using her for financial gain. They are selling her fortune-telling abilities and keeping the profits for themselves. The slave girl is one of the lowest and most marginalized people of her She's being used, abused. She has no freedom physically, and she has no freedom spiritually. She is bound by her slaveholders, mistreated by her slaveholders, misused and mistreated by them, and at the same time, she has no freedom spiritually. She is bound by a demonic spirit, and both of them have her life in shackles and chains, not real ones, literal chains and stuff that has her life bound, but no freedom whatsoever. So she's following Paul around, and as Paul goes from place to place, and as he goes to this riverbank, this woman is constantly yelling out, these men are, mass, are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. You would think that would be okay, right? She's kind of like bolstering Paul's message. But she does it over and over and over again. Notice how Paul responds. She kept doing this for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. Now you may be thinking at this point, well, now wait a minute, Pastor. Are you saying I've got some friends and people in my life that are possessed by demons? Hold on. Do I believe that demonic possession is still happening in the world? Absolutely. I see nowhere in Scripture where it says that it ever stopped. Am I saying that your friend, this person in your life, 
Is demonic possessed? I don't know. I can tell you this, that there are people in your life who are being used and abused and marginalized just like this young woman is. I guarantee you there are people in your life who are being abused by their spouse, abused by someone else in their life, and you've seen it, you know it. They're just as enslaved as this woman is. There are people that you come in contact with in Robco every single week who, while they may not be demon-possessed, they're absolutely enslaved to drugs, alcohol, sex, lust, greed. We can go on and on, right? Now, Paul was annoyed. Why was Paul annoyed? Why why wasn't Paul happy that there was somebody there who, who was prophetically speaking the truth about Paul, because what she says is true. Here's why Paul is annoyed. is because she is becoming a distraction for people to hear the gospel. And not only that, Paul doesn't want a demon being his public relations leader. Paul doesn't want a demon speaking on behalf of God, whether it be true or not. So Paul says, I cast you out in the name of Jesus. Now, did this young lady come to faith in Christ? We don't know. But I think we can both agree that she was a long, long way from the cross. And what I want you to understand is, is that person who's marginalized, that person who's being used, that person who's, who's addicted, that person who is being enslaved to any myriad of things, when you start bringing Jesus up to them, it may not be a pleasant response. If you'll put that screen back up there for me, Mike, I want to show you something. I want to remind you of something. People who are over here, people who are over here who are far from Jesus, may not respond that well to you when you bring up truth. They may get very angry with you. They may say some very harsh things to you because they don't know the Jesus you know. They are so far from where He is and they're so steeped in their sin and so steeped in the slavery and so steeped in darkness that they may lash out at you. Take it personally. Matter of fact, it's in that moment that we need to love them even more. Paul wasn't even looking to see someone or to engage someone like this demon-possessed woman. He went there to that riverside that day to engage people who were closer to here. Listen, he went there to engage people who were here, who had already heard about God, who, who understood the God of creation. He wasn't expecting to run into a woman who was demon-possessed, but yet isn't that how life works? We have the best of intentions. And then God brings somebody into our life that is incredibly broken. Why do you think God does that? Why do you think it happened on this day? Because Paul, learner of Christ, is there with the good news. He also had the power to pass, cast out this demon. So this girl, although she was a long way from Jesus, and we don't know where it all played out, we don't know if she ever came to faith in Christ or not, but I can guarantee you this, she's a whole lot closer to the cross after Paul got done than before he got there. She's a whole lot in a, she's in a better place now to put her faith in Jesus than where he found her. Did you know that, that ultimately, wherever we find people, help them to take another step closer to Jesus? Maybe that's the way we love them. Maybe it's by, by providing a need and meeting a need in their life. Maybe it's by, by simply shaking their hand and, and smiling with them and showing them love when they're living in a world that has very little love for them. Maybe it's a bag of food. Maybe, maybe it's more in their yard. Maybe it's doing something for them that no one else would do. That when you leave that person, they are closer to understanding the gospel closer to understanding true unconditional love than Adam. A little bit freer. A little bit curious as to why you would do such a thing. Whoever you're engaging, wherever they are, leave that person better than you found Closer to Jesus than you found Better love than you found Experiencing grace, maybe where they had experienced grace. So we have Lydia, who is very close understanding God the Creator. We have a, a woman who is far, far, far away from Jesus, and we still don't know. Still don't know if she ever put her faith in Jesus or not. Let me introduce you to the third one. 
So Paul, after casting this demon out, just ruined the business of these slaveholders. Because when Paul cast out the demon, she no longer has the gift of fortune-telling. She, she no longer can offer this divination for these men who had enslaved her, so they have lost not only their soothsayer, but they've also lost their income. They weren't too happy about that. These men, verse 19, her owners, notice that, her owners, her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them into the magistrates, the magistrates were like the judges, um, not necessarily political, but, but there to enforce the law of the Romans. They said, these men are Jews. I want you to see the three arguments they make about Paul and Silas and why they should be arrested. First of all, these men are Jews. The first argument is, or the first charge is, is they're different from us. They're Jews. And we're Gentiles. This first charge has as its main purpose to kind of flame up some racism against Paul and Silas. So their first charge is, is they're simply Jewish. They're different than us, and they, they must be dealt with. The second charge, notice what they say. It says, these men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. In other words, they're causing trouble. They're troublemakers. Now, where was Paul? Paul is out at a river, all to himself, with a group of women, probably no more than 10 or 15 out there. And what's he doing? He's simply talking to them about Jesus. He's not stirring anything up. If anybody's stirring anything up, it's these men. So the second charge is, is they're, they're stirring up our city. And the third, third is they advocate customs. Notice that. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us. They're proselytizing. Now the initial thought is, is they're Jews who are trying to gain more people into Judaism. That's their initial thought. And because of this, because of these three simple charges, they're Jews, they're stirring up our city, and they're proselytizing. They're telling people about some God we don't know anything about. Paul and Silas are beat with rods. Now, this would have been a horrific, horrific beating. They would have been thrown to the ground, probably their backs exposed. Long rods that would be the equivalent of a bamboo rod that has a, a, has a real strong hit to it that's going to leave welts and bruises. And, and Paul and Silas are beaten down. Then they are taken and thrown in prison. The Roman prison that they would have been in is just basically nothing more than a hewn out wrong, uh, a rock cistern, cold, damp, pitch black dark. They're put in there and then they're put in the stocks. The stocks would have been these wooden beams that they would have put their wrist in, they would have put their neck in, and they would have put their ankles in. So they are completely immobile. So Paul and Silas are in a cold, damp, pitch black, dark, hewn out rock hole, and their wrist and their ankles and their neck are secured in wooden blocks. Of the Does that sound like a place would be time for a worship service? About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening. The prisoners were listening. Paul and Silas began to, I, I suspect, that they're singing psalms. I suspect that they are singing those psalms that they had memorized. I would imagine that at midnight, as, as the words of those songs begin to float down the corridors and into the other cisterns and the other places where people are caught in the stocks, the first thing that has to run through your mind, if you're a prisoner next door to Paul and Silas, the first thing that's going to run through your mind is, what's wrong with these two guys? I mean, the initial thought is, is they must be crazy. They must be mad. They must be insane. But as they begin to sing and as they sing more and more, they're going to be singing about God, their Father, their Creator. They're going to be singing about those psalms of old. They talk about a Messiah and talk about the gospel. No doubt Paul is trying to get as much gospel and much worship in as he possibly can. And there's a hush that falls across that prison. Because these two men, the only two men in that prison, have something different than everyone else in that prison has. You know what that is? Hope. See, both Paul and Silas knew that if this is the end of the journey for them, if this is it, 
They're going to rot in a Roman prison. Philippi, this is the end of the journey. Then the die is gained. And that kind of hope, that kind of peace, that kind of joy is what this world that we live in today needs desperately bad. That that kind of hope and that kind of peace and that kind of joy that in a, in a moment of, of great pain, possibly death, there are two guys and only two in this entire prison who see life the correct perspective. That is, if I die again because my soul is secure in Christ. And as they're singing, foundations begin to shake. The earthquake hits. Because God is not done with Paul and Silas. And when God's not done with you, there's not a jail cell on this planet that will hold you and keep you. There's nothing that's going to get in your path. If God is not done with your life, if God is not done with your mission and your ministry, then greater is He that is in you than He that lives in the world. The foundations begin to shake. The stalks fall off of their wrists and their necks and ankles. Everybody's bonds were unfastened. Everybody. Notice that. Not just Paul and Silas, but every prisoner in that prison has now been set free. The, the doors swing open. The jailer wakes up, probably shaken awake, and, and he doesn't know what's going on. He, he runs out and he notices that all the doors are open on all the prison cells. He, he notices that all the stocks are laying on the ground. And he immediately pulls his sword out and he's getting ready to thrust that sword through his side or through his chest because he knows that if, he, if he's found out to have let all these prisoners go, that the, what he'll have to face in a Roman court is by far worse than a sword being thrust through his side or through his chest. So he would rather face that sword than to face those Roman authorities. And as he pulls his sword, there's a voice out of the dark cistern. It says, whoa, whoa, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, verse 28. Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Boy, that begs a question, does it not? Paul, why are you still there? I don't know how much time passed between when the, when the jailer was awakened and he started checking the cells, and by the time he pulled it, let's, let's imagine that five minutes has passed. Paul, why are you still in the prison cell? Why are you still there? You're free. The door is open. The stocks are off. Obviously, God has moved. No doubt, Paul would have heard about when Peter was miraculously set free from prison. Why is Paul not leaving? Well, it's because God's not done with Paul. God's not done with Paul. He's not done with Silas. See, there's a man there. And he's not really far away from Jesus. He's a pretty good distance. He's not as far away from Jesus as that demon-possessed girl was. But he's not as close to Jesus or close to surrendering to Christ as Lydia was. You see, he's somewhere in the middle. He's just an average guy who works an average job in the Roman, Roman system. And he's got a family. He's got a wife. He's got kids. He reports to work every day. He does his job. He's just a good old guy. Paul was not putting, Paul didn't go into this prison thinking that there was going to be this particular opportunity, but Paul is always ready to engage with the gospel. So should and here Paul is at one of his worst moments. He's been beaten. Now, don't forget, he's got welts and bruises all over his body. He might even have some broken bones. Paul is suffering. Silas is suffering. They've been in stocks for who knows how long. And it would have made perfectly good sense to get yourself out of that situation. Go, go get out of that prison. Go heal your wounds. Go, go get a drink of water. Go relax. Go take care of yourself. It would have been justified, right? Been suffering. Go. Get out of that jail. Go take care of yourself. Don't worry about anyone else. But Paul stays. He lingers. Why? Because of this jailer. Because God directed him to. He says, the jailer, don't, don't harm yourself. We're all here. And the jailer called for lights. See, pitch black dark. He didn't even know who he was talking to. He brings the lights and he realizes that it's Paul and Silas. And I don't know if this jailer had heard Paul's message. I don't know if he heard it before he got to the work that day. I don't know if word was beginning to travel throughout this area and, and the jailer had heard about this guy named Paul and maybe, I don't know if he had any interaction with Lydia. I don't know any of that. All we know is that at this particular moment, at this particular time, God had ordained for this jailer to come in contact with a man who knew the gospel had been changed by it. 
He went in before Paul and Silas in fear, trembling. And verse 30 says, then he brought them out. And he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? I don't think Paul went into this prison thinking that he was going to have this kind of an interaction. I don't think Paul went in there thinking that he's going to run into a jailer who's going to all of a sudden want to know about what it means to follow Jesus. But yet Paul is ready to engage. Paul is tuned into what the Holy Spirit is doing. And Paul lingers in that prison. Even though it's dark and damp and cold, both him and Silas have been beaten, bruised. The jailer says, what must I do? What must I do? And they said, believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. If you're like this jailer and you've been hearing a little bit about Jesus, what, what, is, what is left to do? What is left for you to move out of the domain of darkness into the domain of light? Well, believe. Some of you have heard the gospel many, many times. What's left for you to do? Believe. And in that, in this, the jailer must be willing to turn from his old life, turn towards Jesus, which is, we understand, to be repentant. So to believe, to believe, repent. That may be all that's left for you. Maybe, maybe you're right at that place where it's time. All that's left is surrendering the will to Jesus. Paul was willing to stay in a prison where he was suffering the sole purpose of engaging a man who needed to hear about Jesus. He was your typical nine-to-five worker. I would imagine that this jailer is probably a, a good man, probably a guy you'd want to hang around with, just your average everyday worker. He's trying to, do, trying to do a good job, trying to earn a living for his family, yet needed Jesus. Paul engaged this man even though Paul was in a situation where he was in pain. It may be you're walking a very deep, difficult path right now as a disciple of Christ. It may be that the circumstances that you found yourself in, whether it be a hospital diagnosis, something that you never thought you'd have to go through, you may be finding yourself in a situation where you're, you're having to endure pain, struggle, difficulty. What I want to encourage you to do is, is that while you're walking in that valley of, of difficulty and pain, just open your eyes and look around. Because consistently what the Holy Spirit does is when you're walking through those deep, dark places, God is going to use those moments to let you be light in dark places. And what a better what better opportunity is there is when is when you're having to bear up under some difficult set of circumstances, whether it be the loss of a job or the loss of a loved one, whether it's a cancer diagnosis or, or, or simply that you just don't have enough income to make things, to make ends meet and you're struggling right now, what better time to let your light shine than in a moment when things aren't going that well for you? What a powerful impact that it makes on other people when you decide to sing when no one else is singing. When you make a decision that you're going to worship God, when you're hurting like you've never hurt before, I would encourage you to open your eyes and look around because more than likely, in that moment, there is somebody who's far from Jesus who needs the testimony that you have in that moment. Who needs their life touched by, by something real. By, by someone who, who's found true life, true peace, true joy. What better time and what brighter time does your light shine than when you're going through a valley, a deep valley, and yet you choose to worship God? Not to blame Him, not to get angry with Him or get bitter at Him and let the whole world know how bitter you are at God, but that you love Him and you worship Him in spite of the pain that you're experiencing. You know, it's times like those. God gives us a tremendous opportunity be light in dark places. You see, there are a lot of people in the domain of darkness, and they're all different stages of that domain. There are some that are far, far, far from Jesus. There are some that are right there. Your responsibility as a learner, disciple of Christ, is to lead and go back into those places of darkness and help them take one step closer to the cross, one step closer to Jesus, maybe through loving them unconditionally, 
Maybe by meeting a need in their life. Maybe it's stopping on the side of the road and helping someone change a tire on their car. The, Lord, the world has become so cold, hateful, and indifferent. Your light can shine now the brightest it's ever shone. Because the world is so dark. The world needs followers of Jesus who choose to sing everybody else is complaining. Who choose to worship and everyone else is angry and filled with hate. Chooses to follow Jesus even through the valley and everyone else trying to make it on their own. You do that, your light will shine and it's not your light that's shining. It's the light of Christ shining. Father in heaven, in, in these people, we see people that we come in contact with every day. They, they may be like Lydia. They may have everything the world has to offer and yet have nothing. They may be like this young slave girl who is being used and abused and forgotten and shoved around. And they need to experience unconditional love through one of your disciples. It may be like this jailer who's just your average guy who goes and punches a clock every day but has no understanding of what it means to live in freedom and peace. Father, Paul's going to come into a lot of contact with other people. Help us to see not only were we one of those people at one time, as your disciples, we were one of those people in the domain of darkness. Someone came to us. Someone came to us with truth. Holy Spirit drew us to the cross. We believed and repented. And now we've been called to go back into a world that needs to hear. Or maybe, Father, we are one of these three. Maybe, just maybe, that watching this morning or sitting here in this building this morning, that we see that we're just like Lydia. We have everything we need, yet we don't have the best thing. And that's Jesus. Maybe there's someone here this morning who's been abused and pushed aside and the anger that they have has overtaken their life. Father, they need to know that they're loved. Maybe, Father, it's just the average person working the average job. They're lost and far from you and need to surrender their life to something greater than themselves. Father, I pray that for every lost person online or in this building this morning, that they would take a step towards Jesus. We ask it in Christ's name. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist.